From Bumble Australia and Shameless Media, this is Love Etc. When my love takes me home, it's one of five to thirty miles on. Foot like lead, nerves like steel, wild ride when it's taking away. When you grow up, you're sold the romantic fairy tale of what true love looks like. It's enduring, it's all-powerful. But what if, when you meet the love of your life, things don't pan out how you planned? Welcome to Love Etc., where your hosts, Michelle Andrews and Zara McDonald. Hello, you're listening to Love Etc., a podcast by Bumble Australia, the social networking app where women make the first move. Today, we're hearing the stories of two women who found great, all-encompassing loves and then lost them. Today, we're starting with Simone. Simone was 15 and at what she calls a bogan house party with her best friend when they noticed a boy with bright blue hair. So I met Watsi when I was about 15 at a bogan house party in Cranbourne. He liked my best friend instantly. He had blue hair and he lived in a really rough part of Cranbourne behind a fish and chip shop that we worked at. So he walked us home on the way home because we'd obviously lied about I was staying at her house and she was staying at my house and we're at this party. Her dad was going to work and they only had one headlight so we could see the one headlight coming up the road and we quickly all ducked behind a car and it was the best thing ever. Simone didn't see Daniel, or Watsy, as their group nicknamed him, very much over the next few years. Sometimes he'd pop into the local fish shop where she worked, or they'd see each other through mutual friends. But it wasn't until Simone turned 18 that she started seeing him around at nightclubs and bars. We had Kelly's Pub in Cranbourne, and that's where everybody went. If you were 18, you went there on a Friday night, and there was a whole group of them. So his friends went to our high school. And they were like three or four years older than us. And then I kind of re-met him there. So he had a girlfriend when I first met him. And then I think they probably broke up about two years later, right before I moved to Queensland. So even then it was, hi, how you going? Good. Can you buy me a drink? I've got no money. Sure. And that was it. Like there still wasn't a huge amount of contact. What are you thinking of him at that time? Like what kind of person was he and how did you consider him? He was nice. He was a bit shy. He was really funny and... There was a big group of them and I think like me and my friends kind of liked one of his friends as well. So he still wasn't really on my radar. His girlfriend was really nice. She was really shy as well. And so there are acquaintances. Simone moved to a small Queensland town to stay with her grandparents and work in the local bar. She would casually text Watsy here and there, but when she caught news of his cancer diagnosis, their bond steadily grew stronger. Yeah, we started texting More and more, probably for about 18 months, I think. So my grandpa died a year after I moved up there and I stayed for another year and we got together in that time and I moved back. I imagine you were quite lonely. Were you lonely living up there? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, pretty lonely because it was everybody, it was a really, really, really big drinking culture and lots of people that I met were a lot older. So the people that I really had a lot to do with were really just people that came to the pub and I talked to them. And they were all probably like 30, 35 by then. So, yeah. So did you get in contact with him? Did he get in contact with you? How does this, how do you start talking again after all of this time? I think I I messaged him. So the mutual friend had messaged me and he was offered, so he had stage three melanoma um, in his thigh and he was offered treatment that was 
pretty rough to go on. So it has a high depression rate. You have to take the medication every day. You can't work for that. And it goes for a year. And he wasn't really in a position financially or he didn't really have the family support to be able to take that option. I don't think even if he had, he would have, knowing him. Like, he was really stubborn and wanted to ride motorbikes and things like that. It just didn't fit in with his ideals and the way he lived. But the friend had messaged me and said, you know, we've been trying to talk to him. We really think that he should go on this treatment. He's really stubborn and doesn't want to. Could you ask him? And I was like, um, not really. That's not any of my business. But I will text him and say, like, I know what's going on and that's really crap. And that's how we started talking, I think. Like, it was just a message of, you know, I'm really sorry that you have cancer. I wonder why they asked you if maybe they knew that you guys had this unique... I don't know, because I've really, like, had not much to do with him at all. But maybe the friend was just clutching at straws, I think, because his friends really wanted him to take this option that he had. Yeah, so you sent him that first text message and you're saying, I'm sorry to hear you have cancer and I'm here for you. What then happens? Was it almost like love letters in the form of text messages? Not really. It was really casual. And it was sporadic too. Like we didn't talk every single day. We'd talk for like a couple of weeks and then I wouldn't hear from him for two months and vice versa. And it was okay. Like when we sort of picked it up because I wasn't sitting there going like, oh yeah, like when I get back to Cranbourne and see my family, like I'm going to catch up. It was just like we were just talking, I think. And it was maybe just two people that were a bit lonely, but there was no... I don't really know like what he was doing romantically in that time that we were talking, but I was with other guys, so mm. he's probably doing the same thing knowing him. Yeah. So, yeah. Was it a big source of comfort for you in that time? Um, not really. Like, I didn't really rely on it. I was always happy to hear from him, but, yeah, it wasn't really romantic at all. It was probably when I first saw him again. That's when I was like, oh, my God, like, I actually really like him. It was Christmas time when Simone came back to Melbourne to visit family and friends. She texted Watsy to let him know she was back in the area and it was decided they should catch up over a drink. He'd been out riding and sprained his ankle so he comes hobbling into the pub and we had a few drinks and then one of my girlfriends texted and she was really excited to see me so she came and kind of crashed it too and we're in the toilets together and she's like, you're going to go stay at his house tonight, aren't you? I'm like, no, 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 like... No, it's not like that. And so we had a few drinks and I was getting a bit nervy. And I used to have this thing where when I talked to a boy that I liked, my voice would go a bit weird. And I was like, <coughs> oh, my God, it's happening. <coughs> Something's happening to my body. Oh, my God, I like him. Um, what was it about him? He's really, he was really, really funny. Like he's hands down the funniest person I've ever met. He just made me feel like, even though I was nervous, he made me feel like a real sense of peace. And I felt that the whole time I knew him. If he was around, it was all right. Even when I wanted to kill him, I felt peace around him. So how did that night end up? We went to his house. My girlfriend came. The next day he couldn't go to work because he'd sprained his ankle and he texted me. And my dad's like, oh, yeah, something's going on there. I'm like, nah, 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 it's fine. And in a show, like to sort of sort of show them that nothing was going on because I just did not want to admit that I liked him, he even came over for tea on the Monday night. Like he played with my brother and sister's toys. They were playing like PlayStation and stuff together. And my mum's like, oh, she, she wouldn't bring him over if she didn't like him. Like, you know, they're just friends. And my dad's like, no, 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 I can see through this. And it was the next day I think he texted me and he's like, yeah, I think like I kind of something's going on here. I'm like, yeah, I 
really didn't want to admit it, but I'm also feeling those things. And that was it. Like, so so he together. said it first. Yeah. And how did that make you feel? Good, I think, until, like, because I was still living in Queensland. So instantly I was like, oh, like, what should I do? Should we just hang out? And I probably had, like, a week and a half. So I just, we just sort of went and seen how it went. So I think I saw him every day that I was down. Um, we went and saw Twilight. He loved it. How old were you at this point? And how was his health at this point? So fine. We didn't even really talk about that at all, like that he'd had cancer. Um, he sort of like, he only really talked about it in like he had um, a catheter and stuff like that. He would talk about that more than anything. Like that was the most traumatizing part for him that he had to have a catheter. We, I don't think we spoke about it at all. We just talked about, you know, what we were doing. He was a bricklayer and loved the guy that he worked for, but hated the job. And I think he was... I think because I was living in Queensland, like, he kind of saw it as a, I could have more too. Mm. Like, I could move out of here. How was saying goodbye to him after that week and a half? I'm um, pretty sad. I cried the whole way home on the plane. I really, I knew before I'd left that I would move back. And I'd sort of been looking for something as well. Like, I wasn't really happy up there. Do you think you fell in love with him over that yeah, week? definitely. Really? Yeah. It was so easy. Like, Yeah. He was just so easy to love. And so Simone made the decision to move home and be with Watsy. She was only 22, but before long they had found themselves living together with four pets, spending their spare money on fish and chips or a DVD to watch on a Friday night. I think because he, he really liked my family, I think because I had like mum, dad, brother, sister, we ate dinner together every night. It seemed really traditional to him and he really... He really wanted to be part of that. So he came over for tea all the time. And my brother and sister loved him. They were all over him. My mum loved him. My dad took a bit to warm up, but he grew to love him too. Um, we went to the movies a lot. We'd just have drinks in his backyard while he like played with his motorbike. And, yeah, when I moved... So I came back probably two months later. Like, it took me about two months to get back. And he had, like... Mm-hmm. Valentine's Day Teddy and that because we'd miss Valentine's Day and we used to go and eat tacos all the time because I really like tacos like it was very accommodating I didn't have my license so he used to drive me around everywhere all the time yeah and we just spent a lot of time together doing nothing really how old were you when you moved back 22 so you were 22 and how long after that did you guys sort of realize that you did love each other and how did that sort of how did you tell each other I think actually he told me for the first time on my birthday which was in May so I'd said it a couple of times and he was like he didn't say it straight away and then yeah he told me on my birthday so he used to go to work really early at like 5 30 and yeah he was like happy birthday I'm like happy birthday I love you and he's like I love you too I was like oh I'm wide awake now where's my presents (laughs) (laughs) um yeah he was no he didn't really say it that often like it wasn't a very romantic relationship but it was more thoughtful things that we would do for each other I think so we ended up moving into this horrible house in Roeville it was freezing like you would lay in bed and you could see your breath in winter it was so cold we had electric blankets there was a sunroom for the dogs that we used to lock them in every night because it was too cold and we lived there for about a year so it was pretty rough like I by then I'd got another job and I was being underpaid and there was not much money but we used to spend a lot of time together and if we ever like had an extra $50 we'd go get fish and chips and buy a cheap DVD and watch that and that was like oh thank god for Friday nights and his mind would be blown by like Netflix and Stan I think <laughs> that he could just like pick a crappy Adam Sandler movie at any time of the day to watch 
but it was, yeah, it was a really nice time. Was it a completely happy relationship? Not always. He wasn't very good at communicating, like, if we were fighting. I know one fight we had, like, I was yelling at him and holding a pair of scissors, and I'm like, I'm going to go put these down. Like, he made me so mad. But, yeah, it was, overall, we were pretty happy, I think. And the whole, like, moving to Western Australia really tested that. Like, if we weren't going to make a proper go of it, that was it. And we'd been together for two years by then. So it was kind of, I will come to Western Australia too, but you need to actually start making commitments to me, like that you're going to give me the things that I want in the future, which was, you know, the marriage and the house and things like that. By all accounts, Watsi's health was fine. He'd have little blips here and there, but as far as Simone could tell, two years into their relationship, he had conquered cancer for good. Then the big decision was made that they'd move together to Western Australia to work in the mines. We'd been talking about it on and off for months, probably like three or four months before it actually happened. And by the time it happened, I think it was either like it's got to happen now or it's just not going to. So he flew over on the Tuesday and I think he had the job by the Friday. And he was the one that you wanted to marry? Yeah. Yeah, he was my first love. He was my first really big long-term relationship. So I thought like we had our issues with the communication and things like that, but there wasn't really anybody else for me. Like that was it. What kind of future did you imagine for each other at that age? Lots of Ranga children. We had between us some pretty interesting hair colours, um, even to the point that his friends were like, we're going to make, we'll make sure our kids play with yours because they're obviously going to have red hair and lots of freckles. <laughs> um, I thought that we would just sort of probably live like the same kind of way that my parents do. Like he'd still go riding and the kids would go to swimming lessons and it wasn't a long term like it was a five year plan to go to Karatha. It was tight like it was just to get money for the house and then come back. So I thought that we'd probably settle like near Cranbourne or something like that, like buy a house and land package. Like that's sort of where we were at, I think. So how old were you when you moved there? I was twenty five. And tell us how long you were in Western Australia for before he got sick again. Two days. You were there for two days? I was there for two days. I got there on the Friday night. He worked on the Saturday. He finished work and came home and he's like, come on, I'll take you to the shops. I know that you're hanging out to go and see what the shopping centre's all about. And we got there and we're walking around and he's like, oh, I feel really weird. Like, my vision feels a bit weird. And I said, oh, maybe you're getting a migraine. That's what happens when I get migraines. Like, I get, like, this weird aura and I can't see properly. And he's like, oh, yeah, maybe. So we went back home and just hung out. And then the next morning he just was throwing up and said that he had a really bad headache. I still didn't have my license by then. And he'd found this strange little car that had a massive lean on it that was manual. So I couldn't even, like, I could drive auto, but I couldn't even drive that. So we had to call his best friend and he ended up going to the hospital and they just gave him some medication and discharged him a few hours later. So that was pretty much for the next week and a half. That was just our life. Doctors, hospitals. One doctor we went to said that maybe it was me because I just got there when everything had started, even though we'd lived together for a year. So for a few days, I changed the cat's kitty litter and I didn't wear deodorant and didn't wear perfume and changed my shampoo just in case he was actually allergic to me because that's what they told us. And they also printed out a sheet on migraines for us. What was it in that week and a half? Like, was he consistently ill? Yeah, he would have days where he would feel okay, but they were never two days together. So in that time, for the most part, he just had headaches and he was throwing up a lot. Um, on the last time, so on the I moved over on the 27th of July. He got sick on the 29th. On the 10th of August, he went to work feeling like crap. 
and I'd got a job by then so I was on my third day at my new job and he went to work and he was talking to his bosses and he's like oh just give me a sec and went and threw up in the girls toilets and when he came back they're like go to the hospital and don't come back your job is fine you are fine you and Simone are safe here but you need to something's going on and we don't want you back here until you've got it sorted out and it was I didn't even know like I was at work he didn't message me or anything I was just you know in a new job like completely consumed and yeah he went to the hospital and a CT scan was done like somebody saw enough sense to actually do a CT scan but there was no radiologist or anything there so the doctor did the CT scan and the doctor looked at the scan and said I can actually see something here in your brain in your gut during this time before the scan did you ever think maybe it could be cancer again nothing no because he'd never he'd never given me a reason to think that it could come back and the doctors didn't say anything either. The doctors were like, migraines, or maybe... And then it, people over there kept saying, oh, everybody gets sick when they move to Karatha. Like, it's the heat, it's the dust, like, it just gets into you. So there was lots of weird excuses of what it could be. So how does the love of your life tell you that he's got brain cancer? So he picked me up from work. I don't know... I still don't know what he did in those hours, like, all day, because he didn't message me or anything. He picked me up from work in the tilt car that tilted to the side and he had his arm wrapped up so he had a cannula in his arm they'd admitted him to hospital and he'd sort of fought to be let go because they couldn't do anything anyway I got in the car and I was like oh you've have you been to the hospital and he's like yeah my work sent me they said you know don't come back until you're better um and then I'm like oh so what happened at hospital like did they say anything and he said yeah they did um did you want to know now or do you want to get home and talk about it and I was like no now absolutely now and he's like oh I've got to go to the chemist so maybe we'll talk about it after that I'm like no 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 like stop the car now 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 um and he just said oh they said that there's like five tumors in my head and I was like okay and he's like all right well let's we'll go to the chemist and that was it the chemist was like right around the corner from my work so he just kept driving to the chemist and I just looked out the window and I was like what just happened when we went to the chemist, they actually, like, he gave him the scoop. So he was on some pretty heavy stuff. And they looked at us and they're like, oh, we're just going to call the hospital just to make sure. Like, they couldn't believe that somebody his age that looked how he did was getting the medication that he was. He'd said in the car, like, let's not say anything to anybody. But I immediately called my mum. And they were all, because of the time difference, like, they were all having dinner and stuff like that. And I could just hear it, like... I think just from her tone, I could hear my family in the background going like, what's going on? What's wrong? Like the kids were like, what's wrong? What's wrong with Simone? What's wrong with Watsy? And yeah, she just kept saying, oh my God. Before I'd left, she drove me to the airport and she was crying heaps at the airport. And I was like, what's wrong? It's okay. Like, I'm going to see you soon. We're going to be home for Christmas. Like we'd made a plan. We're coming home for Christmas. And she said, oh, it's just, it's so far away if something goes wrong. And I'm like, what would go wrong? It's fine. Like, stop. Everything's fine. And I think that that night, like, I don't know. She's never said, like, I knew something would happen, but it was almost like she kind of, yeah, it really hurt her that it was so far away when that happened. What happens next? You have that night together where you've just found out he's got five tumours in his brain. He's discharged himself from hospital. Where do you go? What do you do? We got Yummy Box, which was a really bad Chinese shop in Karatha. He really wanted me to see Yummy Box. Um... We'd watched a movie. My mum rang us, like, 
six times. She was the, so they were the only ones that knew that night. So my mum rang a bunch of times with like really weird things. Like I was just thinking you should get his sperm frozen. Like, all right. Yeah. Let's not talk about sperm right now. Um, and then he called his boss and said, oh, do you guys want to come over and have a chat tomorrow? So they were coming over. He felt really good because he took the medication and the medication worked instantly because it was steroids. It made him really hungry and he hadn't eaten for ages. Like he'd just been living on golden gay times that I used to go and get from the servo for him. So he was really, even though he'd just been told that news, he felt so good because of the medication. He was happy. He was like eating everything and... I think he just felt a lot happier in himself that he didn't feel as sick as he had been. Was there any conversation about treatment? The next day we went back to the hospital to get the cannula taken out. We saw the original doctor that had seen him the day before. Um, I mentioned that he told him that they could be cysts or something and he said, yeah, they're, look, they're probably not. I just, he was by himself and based on his history, he was the first person to say, based on your history, the first person that seemed to get it. Simone and Daniel made the decision to come back to Melbourne to be with family and seek treatment options. While sitting in their first appointment with an oncologist, Simone's heart sank. They burnt a CD of the imaging of the CT scan in Caratha. He put it in the computer. He sort of slumped forward and said, yeah, this is stage four melanoma. The doctor was probably only like five or six years older than us. He was really young and seemed pretty affected by it. He wasn't crying or anything, but he could tell that he was a bit shaken up. I don't know how anybody else would feel like looking at us. Like we were so young. He was only 27, I was 25. And what's his dad came with us to that appointment. And I remember on the way home, he was like, oh, you know, be right, we'll find a way. It'll be all right. We'll work something out. And we're just like, oh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> like, because nobody had said the words, you know, this is the end. We were like, yeah, we'll just get brain surgery. They can take out five tumours at once, yeah? What point did you realise in those weeks that it was the end? The week before, I think. So I just remember being on the phone to my girlfriend and saying, I don't... Because it was always like, we're going back to Western Australia, we're going back to Western Australia. And I remember just saying for the first time out loud... I don't think he's coming back. Like, I don't think that he's coming back to there or anywhere, really. And everybody everybody downplayed everything. The hospital said to me at one appointment, you should start, um, we should get your social worker and you should start looking at palliative care. And he didn't even know what palliative care was. So I told him that. And then when I was in the shower, he was hanging out with my mum. And my mum was like, oh, you know, Seems like there's a lot of options here. And he's like, yeah, except that they were just talking to Simone about palliative care. And she's like, but that doesn't always mean that. Sometimes that just means making you comfortable. So even though maybe a few people had tried to say to us out loud, start getting ready for this, there was always five people saying, no, 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 like he's so young, it's it's going to be okay. So as the weeks wore on, he just became more tired. A few days before he died, he was walking up the stairs at my mum and dad's house and my brother was walking behind him and my brother I think he was only 15 at the time what's he had said upstairs and he'd come down and he said it was really weird I was walking behind him and it was like he forgot how to walk for a minute like he just kind of stopped and looked at me like he didn't know what to do next and those sort of things happened a few times in the last three or four days before everything happened but I think because my brother was so young I was like oh his tracksuit pants are really long like he's probably just sort of tripping on them and my brother's like oh, okay whatever like that was enough for him looking back do you think maybe you were so young 
Do you think part of you was trying to protect yourself from the reality that maybe you were trying maybe. to deny? He didn't want to talk about it either. Like, we had one conversation. What do you want to do if, you know, there's no chance? And he said that he wanted to go to America because that's what every 25-year-old wants in their life. And I said, like, well, what about a baby or something? And even then, when I was, when we were having that conversation, it was like, what if you've only got, like, six months sort of thing? Like, that's what my brain was at. And he was like, well, I suppose you have to make that choice. Like, it's going to be you at the end of the day. So that was the only time that we really talked about it. I remember once I was crying and he was like, oh, Munchie, it's not that bad. There's people worse off than this. And I was like, no, I, I think that we're at the bottom. Like, I think we're what people say is worse off than them at the moment. He's like, no, we're not. We're really not. It had only been weeks since Simone and Daniel had learned of the cancer diagnosis. It was the 4th of September, Father's Day, when things deteriorated faster than they had ever anticipated. On Father's Day, he woke up throwing up again and it was the first time he'd thrown up since he'd started all of the medication. And by now, like, it's really only been three weeks. So he got diagnosed on the 10th and it's now the 4th of September, so it's been no time at all really. The week before he'd had a biopsy to see if he'd be viable for a trial so we're waiting to hear back from that and he woke up throwing up and he had a really bad headache again and he'd been given like these wafer tablets to put under his tongue if that happened but he couldn't even do that like he was pretty sick and we kind of left him on and off on the morning and then it got to about lunchtime and I was like no I think we should take him to a doctor I rang Peter Mac because they don't have an emergency department or anything. Like, I didn't know, should we take him to emergency? I just needed somebody to say, you know, what to do. And then I think I had a sandwich. I said to my mum, I'll just have a quick shower and we'll just take him to emergency at Dandenong or something. And as I went back into the room after I'd had a shower, he was having a seizure. And afterwards, he was just like, his eyes were open, but nothing. I was like, what's going on? What are you doing? Do you know what's happening? Nothing. Like, he couldn't answer anything. He'd wet himself as well and I called for my mum and they're like, let's call an ambulance. So we had, I think, three ambulance crews at home because he put on so much weight and he was already pretty solid. They had to get him down the stairs as well. They got a few responses out of him, but nothing fit. Like, what day is it? Oh, it's Tuesday. It was a Sunday and lots of mumbling. So they kind of knocked him out a bit there and when we were in the ambulance, he was snoring a lot and... They said, oh, does he normally snore? And I said, oh, not really, not like that. And there's kind of a look there. I think they knew that that wasn't a good sign. And we got to the hospital, so we went to Monash, and they took him in, and he had a really, really big seizure, bigger than the ones that he'd had at home, and then that was it, like nothing else. It was like his brain sort of shorted out from all of the seizures. They did a scan, and he had 13 tumours. So he developed eight tumours in that period from the 10th of August to the 5th of September, the 4th of September at that stage. He was in ICU. Everybody was at the hospital. Like at one point there was probably like 40 of us there. Um, And then they kind of just left him for that night. Through the night I found all the paperwork that they got sent over from Peter Mac and he'd had a PET scan the week before and He had tumours everywhere, all the way up, like through his liver, in his lungs, everything. Like he had so much cancer, it wasn't funny. But we were waiting for that appointment, like we hadn't even been told that. So I kind of knew when I saw that, like this was it. I rang his best friend in Western Australia early on in the day and said, like, I 
I don't know if this is going to be it, but I don't think that it's going to be far away. And that was before anybody had really said anything just to give them a chance to get over there. So they flew over with their two kids and I just like spent the night with him and just talked to him about everything. Um, And in the morning we had the meeting with the doctors and his mum was there and his sister and they just said like, you know, we've done some tests and there's no brain activity at all. Like, this is it. Um, so we had to make that decision to turn off the life support. His mum didn't want to, but at that point I thought he was so proud and he was laying in this bed naked. For every, like He was kind of like a freak show, you know, for everybody to come and look at. And I just think he would have hated that so much. Like, he would have probably preferred if nobody saw him like that and that people just found out afterwards. So... I didn't want to prolong it anymore. Like, if he wasn't going to get better, then there was no point in him. And he wasn't there anyway. Like, there was nothing there. There was no response to anything because he was he had no brain activity. So they turned off the support at about 3 o'clock that afternoon and he probably took about half an hour. So we just sat with him and as he passed away and his friends got there about half an hour too late. But he got to spend a fair bit of time with him afterwards, which was nice. And that was kind of it. It was all on his terms, really. It could have been so much worse. He could have been in hospital for three months before. He could have gone blind. There was all these things that could have happened. But he just had seizures. And it was like he just did it, like, himself. Like, it's done now. How do you say goodbye? Just be there, I guess. Like, I really... They said to me, like, it's really bad when they take everything out like that's you don't want to see there you don't want to be there for this but I just didn't want him to spend like one second alone so that was the night before and the morning of even if I wasn't there like I know I went and had a shower at the Ronald McDonald house I made sure that people were there with him I just wanted him to have somebody with him the whole time just so he knew that you know he was surrounded by love sorry don't be sorry um yeah and that was I think we stayed about an hour afterwards and I knew that getting in the car and leaving would probably be like one of the hardest things. It got to a point, there was a lot of people there that had come to say goodbye and it just got to a point that it was just time to go. It was too much to stay there and there was no point anymore. So they left him in ICU until we were all ready and we had left and we went back to mum and dad's and I think everybody was so shocked because only a handful of people knew that he was sick he hadn't told really anybody and the only reason he told people was because we were in Cranbourne and you can't go to the shop without seeing anybody that you know and he just didn't want to get caught so by telling a few people he could say it on his terms like he could downplay it and people were just so shocked that they'd seen him a few months before and now he was gone and they didn't even know the drive home from the hospital like long very long sitting in the back seat um probably like just getting out of the car park was the hardest thing like I kept thinking like oh but I couldn't stay there so we had to go but yeah it was I've never been back to that hospital like and I don't know if I could I would always choose to go somewhere else because I've been able to sort of block it out a bit I think and I just don't want to go back there and see it you're 25 years old and you've just lost like your first love and the love of your life. How did, how do you feel like in kind of the months and years after you feel like that love defined you? 
Yeah, at the start, I think because everything was really fast, a bit of maybe prickly family history, I felt like I had to make a lot of decisions for him at the start. So things like even just the funeral, like the music at the funeral, I was probably really, really possessive. No, he's mine, you know. I know what's best. I'm the one who's lived with him this whole time. You don't know anything. Probably a real pain in the ass, but people really just let me go with it, I think, because I was in shock as well. He had a really, really distinctive smell, like a nice smell, and his clothes smelt like that for a good year afterwards. So I remember like folding up the washing for my mum a couple of days later and coming across one of his shirts, and even though it had been in the wash, it just smelt like him, and I'm like, I'm just going to keep this for a while now until it doesn't smell like him anymore. I just, I sat at home a lot. I avoided my phone a lot. I used to lay in bed and watch TV. I used to sleep at night. I probably slept like 15 hours a day in the first couple of weeks afterwards. We organised a funeral, and that was about a week after. Then we had a fundraiser. That was pretty much immediate so he died in September and we had a fundraiser in November so that was something else for me to put my mind to. I think it was really good for all of his friends to do something because he hadn't let them do anything to help him or to comfort him so it felt like a way for them to say goodbye and honour him. In the months after her first love died, Simone got a job in a hospital and started coming into contact with people who helped her work through her grief. The hospital was really good because the people there were really, really generous with their time. I met like a melanoma nurse, I met radiologists who actually sat down and went through all of his scans with me and like we talked about the effects of each one and things like that. They gave me a lot of closure, I think, medically by working there. And I got to meet people that were sick that got better and I think that helped me a lot too because I walked around with like a black cloud over my head for a year afterwards, like, oh, you've got cancer, well you're going to die because that's just what happens. So it gave me a way to see the world a bit differently, I think, in those terms. And it also helped me to deal with it, that, yeah, people get sick and he's not the only one. And that was probably the other big lesson, that it was so, like, it's horrible. Like, it was 27 and then he wasn't, but he's not the only one. And I met lots of people there that were really, really sick as well that didn't deserve the hand that they'd been dealt. Like, I met people that were my age with two kids that I was booking scans for that we're never going to get better and it just helped put things in perspective a bit that it wasn't all about this situation. 18 months later Simone decided to step into the modern dating world and meet someone online. It wasn't long before she matched with Chris. So I met Chris like after two or three conversations and I made him come to a pub all the way in Hawthorne because I wanted to clean my house and he did that. He was really really funny. When the taxi when he, like, I saw his taxi come around the corner and he got out and I'm like, whoa, he is really short. I'm just going to stay for one drink to be polite because he's come all this way. And I think by the end of the first drink, he almost feels a bit insulted when I say it, but I knew that he would be somebody, not necessarily, like, become my husband, but I just knew that he'd somebody that would be in my life all the time. So a couple of drinks later, when I was a bit tipsy, I went to the toilet and I turned back and said, don't you roofie my drink? And I think that was his moment. He loved it. I think he talked about it in our wedding, actually, the wedding speech. And you have two kids? We have Michael and Serafina. So Michael has Daniel's middle name. And Chris was... He suggested it when I was pregnant. So, yeah, we talk about Otzi a lot. I've said to Chris a few times, like, I think that he would have really liked me a lot more before all of that happened because I just had... Maybe I was less negative. Like, I checked the kids 
you know, 10 times a night because bad things can happen. Why wouldn't my kids die of SIDS? I just have that and I don't think it will ever go away now. Like, and I'm happy, like I'm a happy person, but I just don't believe in that things will just work out. I used to think before that happened that if you're a good person, then, you know, nothing bad would really happen. But yeah. What do you love about Chris? Everything. Everything except for his time management. Um, <laughs> he is really generous with his time. I can't imagine a better father for my kids. He's he's actually really, really funny as well. He's supportive, even today, doing this. Like, I don't know if some guys would be like, really? Like, it's been a while. He just accepts that I'm not going to just get over it. Like, it's just going to be with me. And I really believe with what's he dying and not having kids and not you know being a part of anything big that his legacy really is just us talking about him and remembering him so if we don't if we don't talk about him he doesn't exist anymore um so we talk about him a lot in our house he's mummy's friend i think it'll be really interesting to explain to the kids when they're older but yeah it's just i guess something that we live with now Coming up on the show, a story from Maddie. But first, it's time for our Bumble Break. Mish, for this week's Bumble Break, Bumble Australia are offering their users the chance to win another holiday. Oh my God, when can we start actually winning these ourselves? I know, hopefully soon, because this time they're giving users the chance to win return flights to Christchurch, New Zealand for them and their BFF. This actually sounds amazing. The prize includes accommodation and two ski passes in Cardrona, New Zealand. So if you're looking for a last minute winter escape, this could be your best bet. All you need to do is download Bumble by Monday and enter the competition. Download Bumble today and make the first move. One app, three modes, one mission. When Maddie met Sam, they were in the corner of a dingy noodle bar late at night in the middle of schoolies. So we're at schoolies and we went to go eat noodles because I felt like noodles and sat down. And there was this guy that sat down next to me. We just sat there and we spoke for, I reckon, an hour and a half or two hours at schoolies, drunk, just about life and all this random shit. And it was really weird because I remember sitting there being like, have I been friend zoned already? I'm at schoolies. What the hell is supposed to be happening at schoolies? He didn't try to kiss me or anything like that. We were just talking for like an hour and a half. And I was like, does he just want to chat with me? Or like, does he have a girlfriend? What's going on here? And we just got along like really, really well. And then eventually like went to the dance floor, I guess. And... That kissed on the dance floor. He asked for my phone number. And then, yeah, we just started texting and kind of went from there. Yeah, so we, like, messaged a lot. He said that he was about to join the army. And at the time I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, everyone says that they're going to do something and then they don't do it. And, yeah, we just started messaging for a while. And then he asked me to coffee and we went to coffee and that went for, like, four hours. This would have been December. It was, like, a very, very long date. Just, like, we got along so well. In those early days, Maddie was attracted to Sam's ability to hold a good, long, interesting conversation. They found they had common ground quickly. She also found him really interesting. He had charisma, was able to like hold a conversation. He is, he's got great morals. He's got great values. He's funny. He knows how to be fun, but also knows where the line is and how to be serious as well. Um, He's got a sense of adventure, which I think is really attractive as a general trait. Um, He's got a really good work ethic. He's got the best advice of any person that I've ever met in my life. 
I could honestly go on. He's just so much fun to be around. It was one of those things where I felt like we had the same values, even though we barely knew each other. But Sam was steadfast on the fact that he was going to leave Adelaide soon and go to the army. And so Maddie thought of their exchanges and their dates as nothing more than a summertime fling. I guess this will be one of those TV summer flings or something like that. Won't see him after January 25th. After coffee, we went on a few more dates. So I just started a new job, um, which I was working like very casually at. And I remember I went to lunch date with him and... It was at 12.30 or 1 and I remember my friend messaging me being like, hey, do you want to go see a movie tonight? And it was 7.30. We'd closed the restaurant down from lunch through to dinner, didn't eat dinner. So he was going to the army? Yeah. You were clearly getting along super, super well. There was Mm. like this connection there. Yeah. What were the conversations about that at the time? Uh, Well, we didn't really know each other. I was 17, he was 18 and we just not getting too attached, I guess, but also knew that – I don't know how to describe it, but it was as though – we knew that there was something bigger, but also didn't want to address that. And he went to the army? Yep. And how did you leave it when he left? We said goodbye really late at night, just before he left. So we kept going on dates, I guess, throughout December and January, and we caught up quite a lot. By the time we had left for the army, we hadn't slept together. Um, and when they first joined what he did, you are cut up out of contact for six weeks. So you don't get your phone, you don't get anything you're broken in I guess if you want to use that term where you don't have any contact with anybody not even with your family and so you get your phone maybe once a week for five minutes and so I was kind of under the assumption that you know maybe if I got a text I would be lucky because he's got a family and they care about him and he cares about them why would he be texting some girl that he's met at school he's like six weeks ago but yeah then he kept messaging me just every now and then and in that first six weeks he sent me a letter And it was just, this is what I've been doing. And it was quite like a long letter. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess this is what's going on. Sometimes it's in like long messages, short messages, but we never called. We only ever messaged. And then he came back at Easter and we threw each other at a pub. And it was just this nice reunion, I guess. We've missed each other quite a bit. At no point did either of them broach what it was they had. After all, they were young, living in different states, and had no plans or intention of that ever changing. In September, October, I went to Europe. And he happened to be in Europe in the same place at the same time. So we caught up then and I met some of his friends. He met my friend as well. And at the end of that, we were messaging a bit more frequently. He was back for summer and he had holidays here and there. So he'd have week or two week long breaks. So think of every time you had your uni break, he would have half your uni break. So he would come back for that whole week period and we'd catch up then, I guess. At the end of summer, so this would be early 2014, I started regularly kissing another guy and that was all it really was and then we sort of started seeing each other but with no strings attached and to add to complexity he went to school with Sam. Sam ended up hearing about it because we'd never had any kind of conversation about what was going on. And what happened after that? Um, It blew up. (laughs) Maddie says even though her and Sam weren't official there was something about her relationship with this guy that just blew everything up. Sam thought Maddie was lying to him about how into this guy she was. He thought she was omitting details about the things she had done with him. So suddenly they stopped talking. So you guys weren't official. No. You, didn't, you never defined it, but you were sleeping with someone else. Is mm. that what it was? And so he was really upset. Yeah. How did it feel to temporarily lose him for those few months where he wasn't talking to you? It was weird. It was like I'd had someone that I was messaging all the time and had like been in constant communication with We sort of knew each other on like this weird deeper level, but also on a surface level as well. I don't know how to describe it. When you're dating someone, you have that implicit understanding of who each other are. 
we didn't necessarily have that yet so it wasn't as devastating as it would be but what happened was I went on a date with this guy and it was terrible <laughs> like it was awful and after he wasn't speaking to me so part of that time he couldn't speak to me anyway so he was out on field and didn't have any kind of communication at all so he couldn't message me anyway so there was some sort of solace in that he couldn't even message me even if he wanted to because he can't because he's away and then I went on this really terrible date and so I messaged him and I was just like I miss you and then we started back in communication again I guess like I was just feeling restless and wanted to get out of Adelaide and I was like I'm gonna go to Melbourne I'm gonna go to Sydney and then I was gonna go visit my friend again in Canberra I was messaging him about it and I was like yeah this is my plan and he was like oh well I've got an event on the Friday night do you reckon you could make it for that actually I reckon that I can and I know it sounds really cheesy but it was just one of those things that as the night went on we were like wow we could actually do this and just sort of fell in love with each other properly through that night and got to the end of the night and we were like this is plausible we could do this and this was a year and a half after you first met almost two years so this was October 2014 from there Maddie had some hard decisions to make for one were they going to commit to long distance? So what happened was we both kind of recognised it, but neither of us said anything. And so this would have been, I reckon it was the 26th of October. And then we were like, well, we want to meet up again, but flights from Canberra to Adelaide are really expensive. And so we both decided to meet halfway in Melbourne. So we both flew to Melbourne because it was equal cost, semi-equal distance, but not really, to get here. And spent just this really, really nice weekend together in Melbourne. A bit hard to explain, but we had this like weekend where we sort of went, right, we need to do something with this or we don't. And we had, hadn't really had the commitment conversation, I guess. Mm. It was my psychologist who said it, actually. She was like, you can't do limbo. You're not a person who can be in this half-half thing. It's not good for you. You need to cement it. You're either going to date him or you're not and you need to pick. And so I thought about it a lot and kind of went back to him and I was like, look, this is what my psych has said. She's, this is what she's recommended and he was like well what do you pick and I was like I'm all in um, and that was a conversation I guess. So how long did you guys fly back and forth to each other and do that long distance thing? Three and a half years. Three and a half years you did long distance. Mm-hmm. What, <laughs> what were your happiest memories? This is a weird one and it's very specific so I don't know if you want to include it. So for my birthday he gave me like a, a river trip down the Seine in Paris and we were in Paris and we, we were both sick because we were both at the end of our trip. And we sat on the bed, forcing ourselves to sneeze by sticking tissues up our nose just to, like, get through. And it was just, like, the nicest evening ever. It's weird, but that's, yeah, I remember just sitting there on the bed, both looking at each other, both sick in Paris, being like, this is so funny but so great. (laughs) Another one of Maddie's favourite memories was around his 21st birthday. Uh, His 21st birthday, actually. That was probably one of my favourite things that had happened. I surprised him, so... We, he was really upset that I couldn't be there for his 21st. Not like really upset, but like one of those upsets where you were like, I know that this is discontent for you. And I said that with work or whatever, that the best that I could do would be, I think his birthday was a Wednesday or Thursday. And I was like, the best I can do is get there on Friday. Sorry, but that's what's going to happen. And I'd orchestrated to fly in on the day at seven or eight at night. And his friend picked me up from the airport. I had to tell him it was on his birthday. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I've just been driving around with my friend all day. My phone's gone flat. Sorry. And he was so angry with me for like letting my phone go down. He was like, it's my birthday. And like, you're not paying enough attention to me. And I was like, sorry, I can't do anything. I don't have a charger. 
And then he was like, well, you can call me before I go to dinner. Um, and then his friend picked me up from the airport and we got to dinner and I stood out the front and I called him and he's like, I've just gone into dinner. You're running really late. And I was like, I'm sorry, I can't really hear you. Can you step outside the restaurant? And he walked outside the restaurant and I was just standing there and he was like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> he's like one of the best people I've ever met. It wasn't that anything really went wrong. Uh, long distance is really hard, but I think that we made it work really, really well. We had this random blog that we found that was just the guide to doing long distance. It was spot on. And it was like, highly recommend that you have a next date that you're going to see each other, that you know your five love languages, that you have an end date to long distance because it's obviously not sustainable. It's like all these different things. And we made sure that when we were feeling restless, we were like, have we checked all these off? We don't have flights booked for the next time we're seeing each other. Maybe that's why we're feeling weird. But it kind of clicked. There was this perfect storm of all these little bits and pieces that all just added up where I was like, shit, I'm not doing what I want to do. It was like the weirdest amalgamation of different things. So at the end of one of the years that he had in the army, which is like the toughest year that you're supposed to have, we were like, okay, we've heavily focused on what you wanted to do this year. This is everything that you had to do. And for the sake of both of us, that's what we had to focus on. And that was the focus of the year. At the end of the year, we were like, okay, we focused on you last year. Now it's my turn. And then we got to the end of that year and I was like, right, that wasn't quite what I expected it to be, but 2018, we'll make it, let's do this. Now it's my turn. And then it got to about March, March, April was when I really started feeling uncomfortable. And I looked at my next 18 months. Well, my next year was like what I intended to look at. And I started this course and that was the first three months. And I was like, cool, this is what I want to be doing. This is what I would be doing regardless. Then I was like, okay, I'm going overseas with my family. This is what I want to do. This is what I would be doing regardless. And then I was supposed to move to Brisbane for three months before he was then posted to Iraq. And then in the middle of his Iraq posting, you get like two weeks of leave. So they fly you to wherever you want to go. So I would sort of be forced to, not forced, but like I would, if I wanted to go on a holiday, I would have to go on holidays in that two week period. And I didn't have enough leave to go on holiday otherwise. So I was like, cool. So then what, three months of living in Brisbane, then I'd have to move back home in with my parents again after living there and work would just kind of have to work in with that. And then he'd be in Iraq and then I'd have a boyfriend who's in Iraq and then I'd go on holidays, which would be great. And then he'd go back to Iraq for another three months or so. And then after that, he doesn't know where he's getting posted, which is probably the Gold Coast which is another three months. And then after that, he doesn't know where he's going and he's hoping for Melbourne. And I was like, there goes my year. This isn't mine anymore. And it was this realisation that the problems that were occurring weren't random or like anything to do with immediate situations. It was just this holistic, systematic issue that either I had to bend and pick whatever he was going to do or leave. So how in the world do you break up with someone you haven't even fallen out of love with? Uh, With difficulty. (laughs) It's hard to describe, but we always tackled any problem that we came to as a team. So it was like, if something's going wrong, if something's not happening or it's not working, we will address the issue as though that it's both of our problems and then we'll fix it together. And that was always something that we'd sort of bend wherever either of us need to. I realized afterwards I was doing a lot more of the bending than he was, but that's not to his detriment. That's just something that he couldn't change. Um, And I had to distance myself from him and from the whole situation to make 
selfish decisions, I guess, and kind of be like, okay, if I wasn't dating him, where would I be going? What would I be doing? Where do I want my life to go if we weren't in a relationship? And so I took two weeks to, and I was like, look, I'm so sorry. I just need space. I need two weeks of a break. And he was like, nobody ever comes back from a break. And went into it thinking I need to just think without any sort of mindset in mind about what I was going to ever do. And then I just thought over that two weeks, I fantasized about what my actual choices would be. And by the end of the two weeks, I was like, fuck, I don't want to give these up. This is, this is actually what I want and had to break up with him. And it just kind of clicked. After that two-week period, Maddie had made her call to end a relationship she was still almost completely invested in. It's, it's shitty and you can't, what are you going to do, fly up there and be like, hi, sorry, catch you later, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave now. With the two-week thing, I'd scheduled in, here's the time that I'm going to talk to you about it, here it is. And then I ended up beating that time in the end because I was like, look, I need to do this now and if I don't band-aid this, then it's just not going to happen. And it was so strange. So we were on FaceTime and I think, the most surreal part of it was that you turn it off and then you're alone. You feel like you're talking to someone and you have this connection with someone that's just on a screen and then the screen goes off and you're like, oh, well, I've been sitting by myself here the whole time. Maddie says as an army girlfriend, there are a number of sacrifices she made to make her relationship work. There are a number of things that come to mind. So money, <laughs> fuck, it spends so much money on flights. Flights, accommodation as well. You can't stay on base. Travel was the main thing. Is there an expectation if you were the partner of somebody in the army that, that their life is yours mm-hmm. and that you follow them yep. and you give up everything for them? Basically, they say that the best people to date someone in the army are nurses and teachers because you're always in demand. Easy to move. Do you think your relationship potentially affected your career? I think I got to a point where I didn't let it, but if I had continued the relationship, yes, it would have. One thing I do want to say is that, and I, I am guilty of this as well, is that people that date someone in the army have such a stigma like such a stigma because I remember for this job interview they said that they had two problems with me and he was very blunt about that he was like one issue is you're very young secondly you're dating someone in the army and I was like what does that mean and it didn't really click until after I'd said that I'd broken up with Sam and he was like yeah well I wasn't sure if you were serious about your career because you were dating someone in the army after you ended it with him how what was that first month like So this course was really intense. So it was great that I actually had something to keep me busy, throw me into just do something constantly. And it was like, it occupied a lot of thinking space as well, which was really good. So it meant that I couldn't, I didn't have downtime to be like, oh, woe is me. But to be completely honest, and I know you're not supposed to say this, but it was freeing. So I had time to not have to call someone for two hours on FaceTime a day. I could listen to Triple J Hack on the way home, which I really liked to do. I could go out at night and not have to think about when I was getting home or that someone was waiting for me or thinking about me or kind of being attached to that, I guess. I know that in the breakup, because I was sacrificing so much, I won a lot when we did break up, but he lost everything. He didn't gain anything from us breaking up. I gained freedom. The hardest part about all of this, she says, is that she doesn't know if she'll ever get over him. Have you ever in the last few months thought about what your life would look like together? Well, it's interesting. So after we broke up, um, he was like, we were supposed to go to this wedding together. And I was like, look, I don't know if you want me there. I'm happy to go with you. It's a small wedding. It's your friend. 
it's your choice. Take a couple of days, decide what you think we need. Well, you need really, not we, because we weren't a we anymore. But I went up to the wedding because I had to break up with him over FaceTime. So it was nice to sort of have this, like, I guess final sort of moment together or like weekend together, which was very odd weekend, to say the least. And the whole theme of the wedding and how weddings always have themes was high school sweethearts that met that overcome all their challenges and all of their problems. And I was just sitting there like, holy shit, this is the worst wedding that for my mental space right now could really be at. But um, there was this moment where we were talking to two girls that were there, two women, sorry. And they were asking her about what she does. And she was like, yep, I'm living up in Townsville at the moment. And they were like, oh, so what are you doing for work? And she was like, oh, I'm, I'm working in admin. And they were like, oh, sick. Do you like it? And she was like, no, not really. They're like, oh, so what, what do you wish you were doing? She's like, oh, well, I've got a Bachelor of Commerce and also a Bachelor of Laws, so something like that. And they were like, oh, well, how, you know, like trying to twist the conversation so that it was a positive, which is great. They're like, well, so do you have any friends up there? And she was like, no, not really. I just hang out with the dog. And they were like, oh, well, you know, we've, we've got a friend who, who lives there and she's got no friends as well, so you guys could be friends together. And I was like, oh, great. I'm so glad that this is me tapping out of this moment. So were you looking at her thinking that could have been your life? 100%. How do you feel about the, the possibility that he might find someone or you might find someone? Like That's the hardest thing about breakups to me and that mm. thinking, well, what happens if I see them move on? I moved on quite quickly so I'd met someone very quickly afterwards um, and sort of was just seeing them very casually for a bit Um, and my friend messaged me and she was like "Uh, I found Sam on a dating app and my first thought was oh my god and my second thought was fuck I hope he's happy having said that I know that it's gonna fucking hurt when he posts a photo with a girl next and they're in love and they've got their cute little you know thing going on but at the moment he's the love of my life Do you think you will ever end up with him again? Uh, To be honest, I don't know. So at the moment I had, I have thought about this when we broke up. I was kind of like, this is not a never, this is just a not for now. But I don't want to live my life thinking, will I get back with him? Not doing what I want to do in the interim. Being like, well, what if we do end up back together? Um, I would not date him while he's in the army. And he's contracted until, I want to say 2022, 2023. And... I guess having said that, I'm at a point in my life now where I'm not over the hurdle yet in the sense that I feel like if we did get back together, I'd be rolling back down that hill, back into the same sort of stage of my life that I was two years ago. So I think I need to to kind of change as a person and then see if it would work again later on. Do you feel like you've grown since the breakup? Oh yeah, tenfold. I was, I was sitting there thinking the other day, my life is so different to what it was a year ago. Completely different. And I guess the breakup gave me that drive to be like, right, that sucks, you lost someone fantastic, do something with it. Love Etc. is a production from Shameless Media. Sign up to Bumble Australia, the social networking app where women make the first move towards friendship, professional and romantic relationships. We will see you guys next Friday.